You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. We're continuing this morning in our series in the book of Judges. Uh, we're going to talk about the, the 12th judge listed, the last judge listed uh, in the book. Probably one of the most familiar names to us out of the book of Judges. Um, we're talking about Samson. And if I say Samson, you immediately think, Delilah. yeah, we're not going to talk about her. So um, there's actually four chapters. Uh, there's, there's, you know, usually if, if you've been around church, there's certain stories in the Bible you hear. You don't realize all the other stuff that goes into that story. So there's actually four chapters um, about Samson. Now, we're going to try to cover two today. We're going to try to get to a couple next week, and then we'll try to finish off the series in three weeks and get ready for Easter. You ready for that? Uh, Pastor Scott will kick off a brand new series on Easter. And so, um, again, as Pastor John said, take a risk, right? Which is, is simply stepping out by faith and allowing God to do something through you that you feel incapable. And that's one of the things we see in Judges over and over and over. Uh, so as we press into this, this book, let me just share a couple of things just uh, updating us. And we, we know about Samson. We know he had this incredible strength. He did these incredible things. Um, one of the things we see about Samson is, is instead of leading an army and gathering up an army, he's all alone. He's like the Lone Ranger with no Tonto. Um, it's just him. And, and it's interesting. There's some things we'll see in this text that, that will sort of give us some insight into his life. And one of the things that, that I see, and I don't know if you've discovered this, but as we've gone through this series in Judges, and you read these stories, you go, this is messed up. Am I right? Anybody? Um, man, when you read the story of Samson, the dude is messed up. Um, when, if you have read ahead and finishing out Judges, there's just some weird, crazy stuff that you stop and go, God, what are you, what are you teaching us with this stuff? Um, and although when we went through Hebrews last year, we find Samson listed there and, and he's listed as a man of faith. And although he was a man of faith, what we discover is he was incredibly unfaithful. So part of it, when I, when I read, not just Judges, when I read the Bible, what I discover is I'm just like these people. I'm messed up. I'm broken. I desire to be faithful. Sometimes I'm unfaithful to the Lord. And, and so it's like I can resonate with some stuff here. And so as we press into this, we, we realize while God was going to use Samson for deliverance, uh, and occasionally Samson called on him, not all the time, but sometimes um, his life was nevertheless one that continued in unfaithfulness. And he was much like the people that he was sent or to deliver. And so what, what, when we look at it, I sometimes just have to stop and say, what, what is this that's here? This is more than just history. It's more than just a story. It's more than just a, a narrative in the Bible. So I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Word of God, I stop and I go, so what? Anybody else do that? You read it and you go, so what? I mean, what am I supposed to do with what I have here? And so as I, I was looking at this passage of Scripture, what I wanted to do is just simply press in because I think there's four. I actually had seven, and somebody say amen when I whittled it down to four things that, um, 
that I want to share with us this morning that I believe are really practical from the life of Sam Sedell. Chapter 13 is really, he's introduced because he's not born yet. This is the first judge that we see that was not living. And so God made this promise to Samson's father, whose name is Manoah, and his mother, who I simply call Mrs. Manoah because we don't have a name for her, Samson's mom and dad. And so he, God gave them this promise. You haven't born a child, and, but I'm going to give you one. And you're, you're going to set this child apart for me. You're going to consecrate him. And we'll, we'll see that a little bit. Um, but I look at this and I go, this is not just history. It's not just a narrative. It's not just a story. What do we learn from it? Because we realize that he wasn't faithful to God. He wasn't faithful to his parents. He wasn't faithful to the people. He wasn't faithful to the vows that he made before the Lord and that were made for him before he was born. But it's kind of an interesting story because we see him being prepared even before he was born. And we don't know. There's some details we don't know because the text doesn't tell us how old is he when he's fighting this battle or when he's doing this or when he's chasing lustfully after women. And, you know, we don't see some of that stuff. But there's some things that we do see in here. And, and I would simply say for what we know about Samson being a really strong guy, he was very weak. What we can learn from Samson, I think there's some things that are, are pretty genuine. But ultimately, when I was reading this, I'm thinking, how can I learn how to be strong in my weakness? How, how can I learn to stand strong for Christ in the weakness of who I am as a person? And so I want to look at that this morning. So this morning, I'll share four things that I see. And let's just begin Judges chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Beginning in verse 1, we simply say these words. We've heard them five times. This is the sixth time in the book of Judges we'll hear these words. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, I want to stop right there because I couldn't get past some of that over the last couple of weeks as I was reading this because I'm thinking, what has happened uh, up, up to this point. This is the sixth time that we hear these words. Other phrases that we've heard over and over, right, um, is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so we, we have that cycle continuing right here. But it's worth noting that when, when we look here, unlike previous passages, we don't see any evidence given in the text right here that Israel ever cried out to God to deliver them. And, and so what, what I'm starting to think is we've gotten comfortable in our sin and we're not going to cry out to God anymore. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And part of me is like, they don't even know they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, why even cry out to God? And so I started just asking the question, what's evil in the sight of the Lord? Because I know sometimes as a culture, as a church, as an individual, we can come to that place that what is evil in the sight of the Lord is no longer evil to us. We get so comfortable and numb in our sin that, that there's no need to cry out to God because it's like, I don't think that what I'm doing is evil. Boy, it sounds like our culture, right? And every man did what was right in his own eyes. They obviously didn't think that what they were doing was so bad. And Pastor Scott has said a couple of times through this series that what one generation tolerates, the next generation celebrates. 
And so this downward spiral that's been taking place, the cycle that we shared many times through this series, right? They do evil. They turn to God. God rescues them. He delivers them with a judge. And they, they kind of go for a little while and the cycle begins all over. I think they become so numb in that cycle. And I don't know about you, but that can become my Christian life. It can become your Christian life. That we're so numb in our cycle of sin and repentance and experiencing God's mercy that we get to the place that we've spiraled deep and we don't even realize how bad we are. But sometimes we call good bad and we call bad good. So as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, so what do we learn? What, what do we learn from Samson in these narrative chapters 13 and 14? I'm going to share some verses and some principles with you. The first thing that I want you to share, how are we going to learn to live in strength, is the first thing we have to recognize what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. We have to learn what is evil. We have to realize and discover anew and afresh what it means to do evil in the sight of the Lord. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time this morning pressing into how messed up we are. <laughs> Pick up the newspaper, grab your phone. Not right now, please, not right now. Don't, don't go, that'd really mess you up, man. We're, we're in a mode of worship. We want to hear from the Lord. Don't check out the news, but later check out the news. I mean, if you don't realize how messed up we are as a people, as a nation, as a world, we call evil good, we call good evil. We've destroyed the character of God in so many ways. We destroy the dignity of God's creation by creating multiple generations or, or, or um, genders of people. We're, we're destroying children's lives by, by saying, hey, you can identify any way you want, and, and we're destroying children's lives. Why? Well, that, that's not just about individuals. That's about the dignity of who God is, the fact that we are created, each of us uniquely, in the image of God with dignity and value and honor for his glory. So I don't have to press into that. I don't have to talk about how on Women's National, International Women's Day that, that we had companies and businesses and even governments awarding women's awards to biological men. Let's talk about how messed up. Okay, we get it. We're all messed up. I could press into a lot of these things. I could talk about killing the unborn. I could talk about the disregard for the elderly, that we've lost the value of human life seeing people the way God sees them. We could go on and we could talk about a lot of those things. We could see it in Romans chapter 1. If you want to grab your Bibles this week and just begin to read Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, where they were so depraved and God finally said, I'm just giving you over to your sin. You want to live in sin? I'm going to, I'm going to let you go ahead and do that. Just go ahead and live in your sin. And I think that's much of our culture right now. So until we come back to realize that we need to recognize what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the contrast that we have to understand, which I don't think they understood, and I think for many of us, we don't truly understand, is the contrast is not just between how good I think I am, but my comparison should be to the holiness and righteousness of God. See, what is evil in the eyes of the Lord is anything contrary to his righteousness and his holiness. You want to know what's evil in the sight of the Lord? Get to know the nature and character of God. His love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. His very name attributes the idea that he is completely set apart from his creation. That he exists outside of creation, yet because of his love and grace is intimately involved in his creation because he's trying to redeem us to himself. So you want to know what's evil in the sight of the Lord? Focus on the Lord. 
His nature, his character, his righteousness, his holiness. But I think much like Israel that we've gotten to the place, it's like, well, my, my, my stuff's not so bad. And, and I think Satan has done a, a wonderful job of deceiving us in, in many ways. Because when you look at these phrases in scriptures, if you realize in, in Judges chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 6 and 10 and again here in 13, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. You'll see continued phrases right after that where they say things like this in Judges chapter 2. They, they did evil in the sight of the Lord and they began to serve the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. They bowed down to them. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They, they did not serve the Lord. They forgot the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So in other words, they were so taken into their culture that they compared themselves to the culture and they realized, hey, we're not so bad because they were doing evil in the sight of the Lord and never realized it. And I think here's where Satan has gotten really subtle is that he's made our little gods things of great value to us. Things that even God says are valuable. Can I just step on our toes for a minute? I praise God for my wife. The Bible says he who's found a wife has found a good thing. Somebody say amen. amen. Do you realize that my wife could be an idol? If I place her above my love and devotion to Jesus Christ, I love my kids. Even in all their sinful crud as kids, they're grown and gone from my house. Somebody say amen. But, but I still, you know, the Bible says, hey, children are a heritage and a blessing from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of our youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. I love my kids. They're an incredible blessing. But my children could become an idol. I could begin to serve my children or my wife or my marriage or my family more than I love and am devoted to serve God. Now, again, this is really subtle. There's a tension here in the Christian life with how we live and how we honor the Lord and how, we com how we're commanded to love our wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. There's a lot of things here that, that create a lot of tension, but we have to understand that anything, anything above our love and devotion to God in God's eyes becomes evil. And that is really subtle, and you can challenge me on this, but there's other things that, that we have taken, that th things that are good, things that are good things, even things created by God, but we begin to elevate them as more important than God, more important than our devotion to the Lord, more important than our love for the Lord, those things in and of themselves can become evil because they're pulling us away from our devotion to the Lord. Let's talk about children. But I want my kids to have everything I didn't have. Can I just say that's a lie? It's okay to say no to your children. God says no to us, it's okay to say no to our children. But, but I want them to have things, I want them to do things. And so all these things become our little gods. They're not bad or evil in and of themselves, but we elevate them to a place that, that we begin to subjugate God's authority in our life to something that's less or something that's added to. Let's talk about family, let's talk about careers. 
Your career is a great thing. God created us to work. He made you to work. The Bible says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. You should work, but your career shouldn't become more important than God. You should realize that he places you where he places you for his honor and glory. Are you fulfilling that in your job? What about wealth and comfort? Those things aren't bad. God is Jehovah Jireh. He's our provider. He meets all of our needs. But when those things become such our pursuit that we're pursuing them more than we're pursuing the heart and the face of God, then they become an idol. And we begin to worship those things. Let's talk about church for a minute. Do you realize church can be an idol for you? Let's talk about worship. Can, do you realize worship can be an idol for you? You come and you're so driven to the music, you're worshiping worship more than you're worshiping the God of our worship. When our heart and our attention uh, are more on the things or the players than it is the person to whom we are worshiping, that becomes an idol. Worship should drive us to our knees because we're acknowledging the holiness and righteousness of God in our worship. Gosh, Dave, how can, how can worship, how can church be an idol when we're more consumed and concerned with it than we are the person to whom we are worshiping? You realize Bible study can be an idol? We should dig into God's word, absolutely. You're going to get to know God through his word and through the presence of his Holy Spirit. But what good is it to pursue the knowledge without the application of God's word? If it's not causing me to fall deeper in love with Jesus and his mission and begin to live it out for his purpose, for his honor, for his glory, and I continue to live in rebellion and disobedience, then what good is Bible study? Someone answer that question. What good does it do to simply take in the word? James 1.22, don't simply listen to the word, do what it says. As you study God's word, it should impact your life. It should change how you live. Why? Because we are all about spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. We are passionate about connecting people to Jesus for life change. That's spiritual transformation. Your life should be different. It should be completely changed. Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us, all of us, somebody say all, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like a filthy rag. What Isaiah is saying is that the very best moment, Dave, that you ever had in your life, that one split second that you thought you were good compared to the holiness and righteousness of God is like a filthy rag. You know what that does? That drives us to our knees to realize that, God, anything apart from your holiness and righteousness is evil in your sight. Let's get our comparison and our contrast correct. Our comparison and contrast is not another person. Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. No, our comparison and our contrast is the holiness and righteousness of God. But I want to make this really personal. Because we can't be right as a nation. We can't be right as a church. We can't be right as a people if we're not right as individuals. So it has to be really personal. So in, in our small group ministry, we have 12 guidelines that we work with. These are not hard and fast rules. They're guidelines because we want to grow in, in spiritual transformation. Number 11 on this card is simply this. Use I statements. I statements, personal pronouns. It, it simply says it's easy to talk about the issues of others, but for our purposes, we want you to put yourself on the table. 
Try to use I statements rather than them, us, we, etc. How many times have you sat with other Christians and said, man, we are really messed up. They need to do this. The church needs to do this. Our nation needs to do this. Here's the whole thing. If we're going to experience spiritual transformation, we have to get really personal and say, God, this isn't about everybody else. This is about me. It's about me. We could read this passage of scripture and we could say, and again, Dave did evil in the sight of the Lord. Just put your name in there. See, anything that I have placed above or more important than God himself then becomes an idol. It becomes evil in the sight of the Lord. And for that, we need to acknowledge the holiness of God. And as we do, then we begin to recognize our sin and we take the step two, and that is that we have to repent. We have to repent. Second principle that I want to share is that we have to repent and receive God's salvation for yourself. You have to recognize what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and what is evil in the sight of the Lord is you and your sin. And it's me and my sin, because the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that Greek word all, you know what that means? It means y'all. It means all y'all. Every single one of us. And so what do we do with that? We recognize what is evil in the sight of the Lord, which is my sin, anything contrary to his holiness and righteousness. And then what do I do? I repent of that sin. I repent and I receive God's salvation. Embrace God's salvation. Look at chapter 13 with me, because 13 is this birth narrative of Samson. He comes into a strong family, and ordinarily a Nazarite vow that we are introduced to here uh, was, was personal. It was made for a limited time. But in Samson's case, the vow was made for him before he was born. Look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 5. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Now, we believe truly this was a pre-incarnate Jesus. This was a, a pre-incarnate Jesus moment as he appeared uh, to the woman that is Samson's mother, Mrs. Manoah, as she is known to me, and said to her, Behold, you are barren. And have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. Get this, underline this. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin, underline that word, begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. There's no promise of him delivering them. He will begin the process. Because we don't actually see the Philistines being conquered till later in the kingdom, somewhere up in 1 Samuel. To, to be a Nazarite simply meant to be separate or consecrated to the Lord. And that was typically an individual vow that someone would make. They were setting themselves apart for the Lord. Numbers chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 give you the clear direction of a, of a Nazarite vow. Anyone could do that. But here, the angel of God, Jesus, I believe, incarnate, a pre-incarnate Jesus comes and he says, you're going to conceive this child. This child is going to be set apart for me. Interesting, because this is the judge that is not raised up. He's not living. He's not like Gideon hiding off in the caves and the strongholds. This deliverer has not been born yet. So this was something that Manoah and his wife would have had to teach their son 
And they would also have to explain why they didn't cut his hair. That was part of the Nazarite vow. No razor should touch his head. The claims of God were upon this child. And it was the obligation of the parents then to train him for the work to which God was sending him. Parents carry the responsibility. There's a lot of parenting principles that we learn in Judges chapter 13. And I think when it's all said and done, parents, I want you to hear this doesn't matter how great a job you do with your child. There's no promise that they're going to walk with Jesus. Doesn't matter how great you are. Doesn't matter how much you love the Lord. Because that's a choice of every single one of us. But it's very clear from the text that it was Manoah's responsibility and, and his wife's responsibility to train up Samson in the ways of the Lord. But when you come to Southbridge and you're part of this church family, I want you to understand, you don't bring your children to us and abdicate your responsibility as a parent for us to raise your children. That's not our job. That's your job. We're here to help you. We're here to support you. We're here to encourage you. We're here to create a, an environment by which you and your children can grow in the love of Jesus Christ together. We're going to support you. We will come alongside you in good times and bad times as much as we possibly can. But of all the hours in the week, you entrust your child to us at one or two hours, and, and you think we're going to fix them spiritually. It's your responsibility as a parent to raise your child in the love and the admonition of Christ. So at Southbridge, we would say that our family ministry exists to come alongside you as a parent and to help you nurture your child in the love and the admonition of Christ. We desire as much as we can to come alongside you to help you and equip you as a parent to disciple your child or your children, to help them embrace a personal faith in Jesus Christ, not simply knowing what they believe, but why they actually believe that. And then to assist you in helping your child grow to become a mature follower of Jesus. And if you're uh, a child or a teen in this room, can I just tell you one thing? We love you. We care for you. But I also believe you've been lied to because we tell you all the time you're the future of the church. Can I tell you, that's not true. You are the church right now. You are the church. And our responsibility is to help you grow in Jesus Christ, to, to serve him, to love him, to walk with him. Not someday, but right now. So this was the responsibility of Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, my good friend, Samson's parents. It was their responsibility. Samson was born into this godly home to parents who believed in prayer. Look at chapter 13, verse 8. Then Manoah, Samson's daddy, prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and get this, teach us what we are to do with this child who will be born. Has any parent in the room prayed a prayer like that? Oh, come on, seriously, <laughs> be honest. I think every parent has prayed that prayer. God, would you please come to me and show me what I'm supposed to do with this? November 19th, 1990, at 4.50 in the afternoon, my precious little girl was born 7 pounds, 14 ounces, 21 inches. Yeah, that math just worked out well. That's the only way I remember that. Um, and I'm thinking, Lord, would you please show up and tell me what I'm supposed to do with this? I know my wife had it all together, but I'm sitting here going, I have no idea what I'm doing. 
And I think every parent has prayed a prayer like that, but here it is with Samson. God, would you please come again and would you teach us what it is to be this child's mom and dad? Would you teach us what we're supposed to do with this child? But then look down at verse 12, and Manoah said, now when your words come true, I love this because now he's speaking again to the messenger of God and he's claiming this promise. Get this, he's claiming the promise. When your words come true, what is it to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Here is a man, a dad, who is seeking the heart of God for his child. God, what is to be the nature of this kid's life? What, what is his mission? What do you want him to do? How am I supposed to help in that process? And he's praying and he's, as he's dedicating this child, and he's praying for guidance and for direction. How many of you can honestly say that you've prayed desperate prayers like that? Maybe when you were a younger parent, God, I feel like this whole thing's out of control. Would you give me some direction? And maybe as a younger parent, you've prayed that. Maybe as an older parent, you've prayed for your child to come back to the Lord. Maybe they're running. Maybe today they're running. Maybe today you're just sitting here and you're so frustrated in this place, you can't tune your heart right. It's hard to pay attention and it's hard to listen because in, in your world right now, it's crumbling. And you're praying a prayer like this, God, would you give me some guidance? Would you give me some sort of direction because our life is out of control right now? Maybe you're an older parent that's praying for that child that's on the run or a grandchild that's on the run and you're praying this prayer for them saying, God, would you please bring them back? Maybe that's you. But I want to take this to a different perspective because how many of you in this place would be honest this morning or if you're attending with us online or listening to this at some point, how many of you would be honest in this place to say, I am that one that someone is praying for? I'm the one that's on the run. I'm the one that's rejected and walked away from Christ. And I know that there are people right now that are praying for me to be restored, to come back, to recognize my sin and to repent and come into a right relationship with God. I want you to know that you can run all you want. God's going to chase you and he's going to pursue you, but he will not be caught until you stop and turn. That, the word repentant literally means to stop and turn and receive his forgiveness. Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. And maybe this morning you just need to be honest to say, I am that one that's, that's running. I am that one that I have people praying for me right now that I would turn and get right with Jesus. Would you do that this morning? Would you be willing to do that? See, all of this wonderful heritage uh, that was Samson was in, he ended up despising. And so here's what, what I walk away with. You can't inherit a faith. God has no grandchildren. He's only got children. So if you've grown up in a Christian home thinking you're good, can I just say you're not? Just because mom and dad or your grandmother or your grandfather were godly and walked with Jesus doesn't mean that you are by nature. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you may have had the most godly parents. That doesn't mean that you're a child of God. You have to recognize your sin. You have to repent. You have to turn. You 
You may have been baptized. You may attend church. You may have walked an aisle once upon a time and thought you prayed some magic prayer. Can I just tell you, there is no magic prayer when you read the Word. There's no magic prayer. Repentance and salvation is by faith alone through the person of Jesus Christ when we confess our sin and we surrender our life to him. Have you done that? Or are you expecting to just sort of get in because you're part of the club? It doesn't work that way. I pastored a church a number of years ago, and I literally looked at a man who was in leadership in this church, and I asked him the question. I said, if you were to die today and stand before God, why should I lay in? And God said, why should I lay in my heaven? What do you think you'd say? He looked at me as serious as a heart attack, and he said, well, because I'm a deacon in a Baptist church. To which I replied, not anymore. No, that's not salvation. Salvation is recognizing your sin before a holy God, confessing, repenting of that sin, turning and surrendering your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Very honestly, have you done that? Samson was in a great environment. That doesn't mean that he was a Christian. Didn't mean that he walked with the Lord. See, part of repenting and turn away is to have nothing to do with. If you're going to repent and turn away from sin, it means you're turning and I'm going to have nothing to do with that, which leads to our third point, And that is simply that we have to resist the desires of the flesh. And I find it interesting that Samson in this Nazarite vow, he wanted to be close to sin and he still wanted to be close to God. Sounds like much of the American church. God, I want to be close to you. I want to come to church at least once a month and I want to do these things and God, I want to be close to you, but I really want to go do all this stuff in the world. I want to be close to you, but I want to be close to everything else because I don't want to miss out on stuff. We have this, this fear of missing out thing. How far can I go, God, before it becomes a sin? Well, look at Judges chapter 14 now, verse one. He simply says, and Samson went down to Timnah. Circle the words went down or underline that. He went down to Timnah. Now, you have to understand the, the nation of Israel, when God sent them into the promised land, each of the tribes were given an area that they were to take over. Samson was part of the tribe of Dan, and Dan had an area that they were to take over. They were supposed to go in. They were supposed to move people out. They were, they were issuing them an eviction notice. They did not do that. They failed to run out the people. That's really kind of what's taking place over and over here throughout the book of Judges. They're growing up. Samson was born in the town of Zorah, which is right outside of Jerusalem. And, and the tribe of Dan was supposed to take everything to the west, out to the Mediterranean. So right above the Dead Sea, just outside of Jerusalem, about 20 miles from, from Jerusalem is this town of, of Timnah. And so literally Samson is living on the edge of God's nation and the Philistine nation. I mean, it's such a perfect picture of God, I want to be close to you, but I still want my foot in the world. And so when it says that, chapter 14, verse 1, it says when he went down, that was true both geographically and spiritually. Geographically, he went down, slightly south, southwest, he went down. Then it says later he went on and he went down to Ashkelon and stuff over toward the Mediterranean. All that area was supposed to belong to the tribe of Dan. But they didn't do what God had told them to do. So now they're fighting this battle. But look, look what he says. He went down to Timnah and he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. 
Again, this just tells you he's living in rebellion because this was not the process of the Israelites. It was an arranged marriage. Here he does. He goes outside the body of Christ and, and he sees this woman, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. He's just living it out. Samson went down. Now look at Judges 14, move down to verse 5. Then Samson went down. So what he did, he, he saw this young lady, went back to mom and dad and said, hey, forget your plans. This is my thing. I want to go do this. And so he took mom and dad with him. This is where mom and dad should have been spiritual leaders in their home and said, no, 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 no. We're going to walk with Jesus. Samson, no. But they didn't. So it says, so... Samson went down, get this, with his father and mother to Timnah. Mom and dad are pacifying the kids. Oh, you want to go do that? But it's a distraction to our walk and relationship with Jesus and our fellowship with the church. Oh, let's go do it anyway. If God says no, it's okay to say no. no. But they went anyway. They went down uh, it says father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards. Circle that because that becomes vital in just a moment. To the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, speaking of Samson. You notice not them, it's just him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Somebody say, hoorah. Oh, come on, that was like cool. I mean, are you kidding? I mean, here's this lion coming at him. He's got nothing, so what? Come on, man. It's like me with my boys when I was young, and I could wrestle and stuff till they broke my toe and I didn't do that anymore. Um, but then look what it says. But he did not tell his father and or his mother what he had done. Wait, so what you're saying is father and mother went down. They came to the vineyards of Timnah. Obviously at this point, what the text is telling us is Samson detoured. Samson detoured. He left the main road. He left his father and mother and he, he took a shortcut through the vineyard. He encountered this lion. Later, he didn't tell his mom and dad, so they weren't there. But then later, verse 7, then he went down and talked with a woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. His lust, his sin was driving him away from the presence of God or anyone that was holding him accountable in that moment. Now, this is what's interesting. They came to the vineyard. There's something significant about this vineyard because when you look at the Nazaritic vow in Numbers chapter 6, it says no wine, no strong drink, no vinegar. Literally, get this, no skin of the grape or, or, or the fruit of the vine, no seed from the, grape of, from the fruit of the vine. Wait a minute. So, no wine, no juice, nothing made from the vine. Let me step in the vineyard. Are you kidding me? This vineyard represents everything that is contrary to his vow with God. If we think we can dabble in sin and get away with it by stepping into the very thing that is contrary to our relationship with God and somehow think we're getting away with it, we're lying, we're being deceived. Does it make any sense then that, hey, the, the enemy is like a lion seeking who he may devour? Do you think that maybe God sent this lion as, as a warning to Samson saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't be here. You being in the presence of the vineyard is contrary to all the vow that we have established. No fruit of the vine, no wine, no strong drink. 
no skin of the grape, no seed of the grape, nothing from the vine. Oh, I can handle that. Let me step into the vineyard. I mean, this is sheer lunacy as a child of God to think that we can play around with sin and dabble with sin and still live a life that's honoring and pleasing to the glory of Jesus Christ. Here he is literally not even recognizing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. So here he is, is, he's broken his Nazaritic vow. There's three primary components and he's breaking them in this passage. He was playing with sin. But empowered by the Spirit, he yielded his body to the appetites of the flesh. That's what he was doing. We are indwelt and we're empowered by the Spirit of God. And yet what we do so often in our weakness is, is we yield our bodies, our flesh, to the appetites of the flesh. Instead of abandoning them and walk away. So how do we resist? Let me give you some verses. You can jot these down. You can take a picture of the screen. James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit yourselves to God therefore. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. You, you can see so much of what happens in, in the spirit and the flesh happens first in our mind. That's why Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, it says Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. In other words, he made a decisive decision of the will, what I will do in that situation. We need to learn to walk with God and say, what am I going to do when that situation comes? Not if that situation comes, I'll deal with it. But what am I doing ahead of time? Because so much of the battle is the battle of the mind. Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed any longer to the things of this world, but be transformed by what? The by the renewing of your mind. Because that's where, they're, that's where we're waging war. Our mind to our heart as we walk in fellowship with God. Ephesians chapter 4 simply says, and give no opportunity to the devil. You think he was given opportunity to Satan when he stepped off the road and away from his accountability into the vineyard? Of course he did. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So as we walk with Christ and we desire to honor him, we walk in his ways, we participate in his mission, we have to realize that our lives will become a spiritual battleground. And we have to be prepared for that. We have to surrender to the spirit of God. I absolutely love Galatians 5, 16, 17. If you haven't memorized this, you need to put this on your list to memorize Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I just wrote right there, there, and in Romans chapter 7, I wrote two words, civil war. Civil war. When I came to know Jesus Christ, when you came to know Christ, the Bible says he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians, as a deposit, guaranteeing all of our future inheritance. But nowhere in Scripture does it say when I come to know Jesus, he eradicates the sinful desires of my flesh. So when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in me, my flesh is there, the Spirit is there, they're waging war against one another. There's a battle that's taking place. And the flesh is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit, contrary to things of the flesh, who's going to win? Whoever's going to win is where I'm, I'm devoting my time and my energy, my desires. Here's the last thing I want you to see is that we have to rally around God's plan daily. Daily. 
See, even though flawed, God has a plan and God has a purpose. Let me take us back to chapter 13, verse 5. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. The child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel. He will begin the process. God had a very specific plan for Samson. And next week, as we look at 15 and 16, we're going to see some of that played out because he became this irritable guy to the Philistines. I mean, he was just poking at them all the time. And God began a work, I think, in the nation of Israel and in, in the Philistine army and the people to begin that work. But it says he was going to begin a work. He shall begin to save Israel. He never said he will completely deliver them. He didn't say he's going to completely eradicate. And so sometimes we want to look at Samson and say, oh, well, why didn't Samson complete everything else like Deborah or Jephthah or Gideon? That wasn't God's plan. When you look down in, in verse 24 and 25 of Judges 13, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. There's a work in progress. You are a work in progress. You, like Samson, God has a plan for you. What is your plan? It's to begin something. It might be to finish something. It might be to continue in something. But very clear, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. God has a plan and a purpose for you. You need to acknowledge that. You need to walk in that every single day. I love the word that Paul uses here in Ephesians. We are God's workmanship. The word in the original language is poema. It literally means a work of art. A masterpiece. You are uniquely created by God for his honor and his glory. He has a purpose for you to walk in daily. Your purpose is not my purpose. Your purpose is not your spouse's purpose. Your purpose is not your best friend's purpose. Identify the purpose to walk in fellowship with God daily. To live in fellowship, to get to know him, to grow in relationship with him. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we wrap up our time. I'm going to ask you to take your notes and stuff and just put them away. And empty-handed this morning, I just want us to spend a moment with the Lord. And I'm going to ask no one to, to leave until we're done. What we do is we gather, we sing some songs, we prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord. And then as we finish, we have a time that we simply want to devote back to the Lord. This time is not intended to manipulate our emotions or play on our feelings or anything else. It, it's simply to allow us time as a church family, as, as individuals, me, I, to do business with the Lord. As we sing this song, you're going to hear words that all the saints and the angels, they bow before your throne. We're thinking about the holiness and the righteousness of God. And as we do that, we're thinking about our own sin. The elders cast their crowns before the Lamb of God who paid the price for our sin because he's worthy of it all. He's, he's worthy. We're singing about his holiness. We're singing about his righteousness. He's worthy, worthy of it all. Night and day, day and night, let the incense arise. Incense is a picture of prayers. You see it in Revelation that God is storing in these bowls the prayers of the saints. 
pretty incredible picture to just realize that God so desires to hear you come to him in prayer, that these prayers are so special, that he stores these prayers in bowls. So we wanna do business with the Lord just for the next few minutes. And I wanna invite you to, to do what God is leading you to do in this moment. If you wanna remain seated, you do that. If you wanna get on your knees right at your chair, just I want you to do that. If you want you to come forward uh, to this altar area and just pray and you wanna come by yourself, you do that. If you want someone to come with you, shoulder tap them, they'll come and pray with you. I'll be right over here if you wanna come and talk or if you want someone to pray with you, just kind of give me a high sign and we'll get someone there to pray with you. But if you want that time alone, you do that. And here's what I want us to do. I just want us all to be honest with God this morning, to recognize what is evil in his sight, to confess our sin to him and be honest with him, to realize that I can't inherit a faith. I have to embrace that on my own. Some of you this morning need to confess sin. Some of you this morning need to give your heart and life to Jesus and quit playing the spiritual games. You might be praying for someone else. You might be praying for yourself. Maybe you need to rally around God's plan for your life. Maybe you need to pray for resistance and, and stop going to those places or doing those things on your phone or in person that are dishonoring to God and evil in his sight and say, God, no, I want to sanctify myself. I want to consecrate myself to you and to you alone. Let's do business with God in this place. Would you do that? Father, in this place, have your way. We want to be a people who are consecrated, holy, sanctified unto you. God, that everything we do would bring honor and glory to you and to you alone, that you would use us, Father, as a glorious work of art, your workmanship, your poema, as we surrender to you. Father, would you have your way with every person in this room? If you need to move, you move. If you need to get on your knees, would you please do that? If you need to come and talk with me or someone and pray, would you simply take this opportunity in this moment to do business with Jesus? Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.